What is it that makes a good teacher into a really great teacher? Is it their ability to cover the material, impart facts and answer questions? Or is it the ability to make you think, to make you dig, to challenge you, to explore and discover? Well, I think most of us recognize a good teacher does more than simply impart facts, you know, transfer information from one mind to another. A good teacher makes us think. Now, I try to be a good teacher. And there are therefore times when I refrain from answering the question too quickly. I know that sometimes frustrates people in our Bible study classes, but it's worth it when they have an aha moment and their face lights up because they've discovered the answer and it's their answer. That's good. That's good. You know, Jesus often taught that way. He tried to make people think. He tried to make them dig a little deeper, and that's important. But there are also times when you just need to know the answer. You know, I can't imagine Chris letting a student blow up the chemistry lab because he won't tell them what they need to know. There are some things you do need to know. There are some things that need to be made perfectly clear. And the most important thing you need to be sure of is that which Jesus was asked about while teaching in the temple some three months before his crucifixion. Let's see what it is. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We've now jumped from the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in October, to the Feast of Dedication, which took place in late December. The Feast of Dedication was not a major Jewish feast, having been established in 165 B.C., long after the close of the Old Testament. It was, however, a popular feast that celebrated the cleansing and rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus after it had been defiled by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who, in an attempt to eliminate Judaism, had ransacked the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. It's a festival that Jews celebrate even today as Hanukkah. Well, John informs us that Jesus was in Jerusalem during the festival. We're not told where he had been since the Feast of Tabernacles, but Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's walking in the covered portico of Solomon when the Jews gathered around him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, Tell us plainly. Now, the reason for wanting him to state plainly that he was the Christ is at best suspect. These are the Jewish leaders who, who want something concrete to use against Jesus so they can convict him of blasphemy and have him killed. 
So Jesus has to be careful how he answers them. It's important that he affirm that he is the Christ, the Messiah, for the sake of those who honestly wanted to know and for the sake of those of us who would be reading his response centuries after he spoke it, but he has to be careful. Let's see how he responds to their demand. We're in, again, the 10th chapter of John. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus had already made it very clear who he was through previous teaching. He had clearly stated that the Father had sent him and that he was doing the Father's work. He had referred to himself as the bread of life, the living water, the light of the world, and the good shepherd. He had made it clear that he was the source of eternal life and referred to himself numerous times as the Son of Man, an explicitly messianic title. But they didn't want to believe him. They had their own ideas about the Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah, one who would establish an earthly kingdom and give them positions of power in that kingdom. Jesus had made it clear that he was not establishing an earthly kingdom. He was establishing a spiritual kingdom. But they didn't want to believe that. They didn't want to believe he was the Messiah that had been promised. But he told them. He had even showed them. He continues, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The works that Jesus did should have made it abundantly clear who he was. The man born blind recognized the fact, as he put it, that since the beginning of time, it had never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. The obvious conclusion was if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Jesus was obviously from God, and the Father was working through him. By now, Jesus had turned water into wine and had fed thousands with a few fish and loaves. He had calmed storms and walked on water. He had healed all kinds of diseases and had never failed in an attempt to do so. He had opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and the mouth of the dumb he had cast out demons and had raised the dead. What more did they want? In the face of the evidence, who did they think he was? Obviously, they did not want to face the facts. They really did not want to know who he was because they did not want to follow him. They didn't want him to be their shepherd, and they certainly did not want to be his sheep. His sheep did know him, and he knew his sheep. He continues, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. There was no confusion about his identity among his sheep. He was obviously the good shepherd sent from the Father to provide for his flock. And those who knew the Father recognized Jesus as such. They responded to his voice. And followed him. And Jesus knew 
who were his, and he patiently taught them. He answered their questions when they couldn't figure something out. He explained his parables to them if it became obvious they weren't getting the point. He knew who was genuine and who wasn't. He knew who really wanted to know the truth and would follow him. He also knew who wouldn't. And sometimes all they got were answers that left them scratching their heads. You know, the same is true today. Spiritual truth just doesn't make sense to those who don't want to follow Jesus, who don't want him to be their shepherd. And quite frankly, most people do not want to be led not by someone who will undoubtedly lead them where they don't want to go. But if you're willing to follow the one who has proven himself to be the good shepherd, he will plainly tell you what you need to know. He'll answer your questions and make it clear how you can secure a place in the eternal fold of God. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Who but the Christ has authority to grant eternal life? No one. So Jesus is obviously the Christ. In fact, he is the only one who can secure our salvation, and it is secure. We did not earn it by our good works, so we can't lose it by our shortcomings. Jesus paid the price for our salvation, so the Father gave us to him, and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Even Satan is not powerful enough to wrestle us away from the Father's hands. His accusations against us are meaningless, because everyone already knows we're sinners, but our sins have been forgiven. And as long as we trust Christ to save us, he will. He's not only our shepherd, he's our savior. And that was the plan he and the Father shared from the very beginning. It was never God's intention to establish an earthly, temporary kingdom that would last and last and last. His goal was always to establish an eternal kingdom and make it possible for all who desire honestly to enter to be able to do so. The Jews did not want to believe that, but it was true. And Jesus could assure it because he and the Father are one. He continues, I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They said they wanted to know 
if Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one God promised to send to his people. So he made his relationship to the Father very clear and said, I and the Father are one. The word he used makes it clear he was saying more than I share the Father's purpose. He's saying we are one in essence as well as purpose. He had already taught extensively on his equality with God. We looked at that back in the fifth chapter. So this should not have shocked them, but it did. The response was to pick up stones because in their eyes he had just condemned himself. Jesus countered by by asking, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Are you stoning me for demonstrating the reality of the relationship that exists between my Father and I? If so, which demonstration? Which good work is it that you're stoning me for? (laughs) They responded that it wasn't for a good work they were going to stone him, but for blasphemy. He had made himself out to be God. But isn't that what they asked him to do? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. He was telling them, but they didn't want to hear it. So he told them again. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now Jesus is speaking plainly to those who questioned his right, as they put it, to make himself out to be God. But the statement he quoted from the law referring to to the whole of Jewish scriptures and not just the Pentateuch is not as plain to us as it may have been to them. The statement comes from the 82nd Psalm, a psalm that is open to several interpretations. New Age interpreters run with the I said your God's phrase, and suggests that if we'll just rid ourselves of the things that keep us from expressing our true nature, we can all experience life as the gods we really are. Their underlying philosophy, which is obviously wrong, is that there is no God outside of the God that is within everyone and everything. Several months ago, I discovered another interpretation of Psalm 82, one that was new to me, one that proved to be much more controversial than I had expected when I shared it at Wednesday night Bible study. The view contends that Psalm 82 and several other passages in the Old Testament that we tend to skip over because they raise questions we have a hard time answering indicated that God created a council of celestial beings to assist him in administering justice on the earth, and that they are the ones the psalmist is referring to when he quoted God as saying, I said, you are God's. The more traditional view is that it refers to rulers in general and religious rulers in particular, and that God referred to them as God's because they were supposed to act on God's behalf. 
without getting sidetracked by the controversy. The point Jesus is making is that since God referred to some as gods in the Bible, it's not blasphemy for Jesus to refer to himself as the Son of God. Surely the one the Father sanctified and set apart for a holy task and sent into the world could be called the Son of God without being accused of blasphemy. And obviously Jesus is the Son of God. His works proved it. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Jesus' appeal here is quite simply, judge me by my works. If I don't do the Father's work, if I don't do the things the Father would do if he were in the flesh, don't believe me. You claim to know God. You know that he would have compassion on the sick and would give sight to the blind and would banish demons. You know what he would do. So if what I'm doing is out of character with God, then don't believe me. But if what I'm doing is obviously in line with the Father's will, then at least recognize the fact that God is working through me, that he is in me, and I am in him, whether you want to believe me or not. Well, they didn't want to. And they didn't want to have to. So they closed their eyes to the truth of what he was saying and doing and tried again to seize him so they could kill him. Once again, he eluded them because it wasn't yet time for him to die. He left Jerusalem, crossed the Jordan into Perea for his final public ministry before then returning to Jerusalem to offer himself on the cross. John continues the account by telling of his reception in Perea. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. John the Baptist had indeed prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah into the lives of those who would believe, those who weren't blinded by their vested interests in a religious system that gave them status and allowed them to do as they pleased. Those who had eyes to see could see that Jesus was indeed the Christ, and they believed in him. Now, even today, though there has been a precipitous drop in believers, particularly among millennials and Gen Z, a majority of Americans still profess belief in Jesus. However, I've got a feeling that if many who claim to be believers 
We're told that belief in Jesus would require some radical changes in their life. They would change their mind. And they would end up responding as did the Jews of Jesus' day. Sadly, what was true in the synagogue is also true in the church. Not everyone who professes belief in God really believes Jesus to be the virgin-born incarnate Son of God. And even many who do profess belief in Jesus do not understand what belief in him entails. So what about you this morning? Do you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And do you believe it with enough conviction to not only confess it, but to be changed by it? No, Jesus made his status as the Son of God as plain as possible. He left no room for doubt about who he is and the kind of relationship he wants with those who follow him. If you honestly believe him to be the literal Son of God and you trust him enough to follow him like a sheep, Following his shepherd, respond to his call, listen for his voice, and follow him. No matter the cost, wherever he leads. Are you willing to follow him? We claim to believe in him. The Jews were honest enough to say they didn't because they didn't want to follow him. I pray we're honest enough to admit that sometimes our belief is not strong enough to follow him either. But Jesus is calling us, and he wants us to follow him. Let's commit ourselves to doing just that.